All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the second anniversary episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. Welcome back. I hope everyone is keeping warm and safe in these streets. My goodness. It's been offensively cold here in Anywhere USA. The audacity... Uh, the absurd amount of layers I wear to go to the mailbox. Anywho, can you believe it's already February? Like, I can't believe that this is what had happened second year. Honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you all for your listenership. Your support has absolutely been everything to me. You push me to continue lending my voice to those who no longer have one by way of these lesser known true crime stories. And I want you to know that, like, this podcast comes from a place of wanting to give back and also to, like, educate in a positive way, but, like, never to sensationalize. That's part of the reason why I don't jump on to talking about, for instance, cases that are happening as they're unfolding. From what I've observed, there tends to be a certain subsection of people that, like, jump in on it super hard and there's like a lot of people covering it and it tends to take the light away from other cases that are equally important and so that's where I come in uh so there's that you know um but hey since it's our second anniversary that I'd give you like I got three tidbits up here little bits of behind the scenes information of ye old podcast like hell there's four now i just i just i just i just figured this one out okay so nope three Mm, no maybe four i'll think about that fourth part okay so number one i listen to music a lot and I like I listen to like various forms of music like my parents have I have a very I have an an extremely eclectic musical catalog is what I'm trying to spit out none of this is on the script which is why I'm really having a hard time with my words (laughs) haha stick to the script girl anyways I listen to a lot of music when I'm not taking in the true crime, the true crime, the true crime, and, you know, momming and wifing and all that other stuff. I listen to a lot of music. A lot. So, like, I mean, like, this is, like, super morb, but, like, it helps me, if you have to understand, it helps get me in the zone. I, right before I start recording, I take a few moments to listen to a small little playlist there's literally like a handful of songs in it i don't listen to all of them i literally just added a couple more 
today because it was literally always three songs every time before I was, you know, would start to get ready. So the list goes as this. Um, so my very all-time favorite song, which has nothing to do with true crime, but it's my feel-good zen space, my happy fa space. It mellows me out. It's Space Cowboy by Jamiroquai. Yeah. Love that song. It gets me there every time. Love that song. I listen to it on repeat. Anyways, so like, and I'll normally listen to that at the end because I'm listening to some heavy shit. So, <laughs> uh, so the list really goes Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. I mean, duh, I've got a dumpster juice bell and it is absolutely a cowbell. But um, I'm not going to be using it tonight. It's late. Um, then I also have Blood Eagle Wings by Anthrax. Killing is My Business and Business is Good by Megadeth. Psycho Killer by Talking Heads. <clears throat> Track 18 on 40 Ounces to Freedom by Sublime. If you know, you know. And Mac the Knife by Louis Armstrong. So that's my little uh, list. I'm sure y'all will be filling the What Had Happened Facebook page with suggestions of songs to add to the list. Nito Frito willing to uh, take suggestions we can build upon our playlist. Anywho, um, like let's hear the second the second thing. All right, so my introductory. All right, all right, all right, all right. It stems from four places. Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. Erica Badu. Andre three thousand. And Project Pat. Uh, let's see here. Also. My thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, that comes straight from Jay-Z. And, okay, so I'll give you a little bit. The <clears throat> title of the podcast, What Had Happened, stems from how when I was 20 and 21 years old, stationed in Japan... That's what myself and a couple of other friends at the time that I knew way back when coined our gossip. Now, it wasn't necessarily gossip. It was anything. So, if we hadn't seen each other all day, I'd be like, well, tell me the what happened. And we used to say it really fast and be like, well, what happened? And it just became the thing that, like, you know, stuck. Girl, tell me what happened. Like, you know, like you're distraught. It, it meant a lot of things. But um, when I was coming up with a list of names of things, I really couldn't think of anything. But one phrase was still, like, super prev within like conversations was what had happened well what had happened is well, what had happened was and so I was like hmm 
So it ended up being the name. It was literally a spur of the moment thing. And it works. We like it, right? Yay. <laughs> All right. So that's that. Um, so as you can see, along with like the little zingers that I drop within the body of the script, like I really do incorporate like my love of music, history, pop culture, you know, it's woven throughout from the beginning to the end. I love it. And I'm glad that you guys seem to enjoy it. I mean, hey, here we are two years later. Ha. Huh. Anyways, um, you know that I know you guys can listen to anyone and I am super grateful and thankful always, always and forever that you choose to listen to me. Um, with that being said, it's time to say thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's your shout out time. What's good? Greenville, Columbia, Ridgeland. Myrtle Beach, beautiful Beaufort, and Anderson, South Carolina. Welcome back, Salt Lake City, Park City, Ephraim, Riverton, and Orem, Utah. I see you, fam. What's up, Clifton, Jersey City, Nork, Exit 13, Elizabeth, and Cherry Hills, New Jersey. How is it going, Memphis, Nashville? Harriman, Kingsport, and Knoxville, Tennessee. Greetings and salutations, Indianapolis, Columbus, Mishawaka, Greenwood, and Jasper, Indiana. Welcome back, Spirit Lake, Grinnell, Des Moines, Council Bluffs, and Dubuque, Iowa. I am always so happy to see you. London, England, south of France, and all points in between. Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, Canada, Germany, and Norway. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Once, as I always say, don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group and follow all of the other accounts across the social platforms, as well as the email address where you can drop me a line or two or suggest any cases you'd like to hear covered. Also, I'm going to say it, <clears throat> since it's our anniversary, I guess I'm just full of little thingy here. Um, if I've talked about a case and you're related to it and you want to get in touch and, you know, you've got something to say, like, I've, I will say this, I've received two responses from two separate, uh, family members from two separate cases and the responses were very positive and that's where I'm coming from um like I know I I know I go in when I'm talking about the nefariousness that brings us to each episode of what had happened and the people that do these things but I am very mindful of the fact that for every criminal that I speak of, there's a long ripple and reach. There are family members, victims, uh, family members that are related to the criminals that have nothing to do with the poor choices, bad days, horrible decisions that 
these people choose to make. And just because I insert a couple of my personal feelings as a human, like it's like in it's in me as a Pisces. I'm sorry. I know I always throw my zodiac out there. It's not a cop out, it's a fact. Um but um like I really do make a consorted effort to like be very mindful and respectful knowing that I am lending my voice to these victims and therefore um I would never want to make light of the very tragic incidents that I speak of and I'm very mindful of the reach and the effects and how far it goes as a person who has also felt the effects of crime in certain capacities in my own personal life um through other family members and things and friends and things of that nature I completely understand so I just wanted to throw that out there um so yeah totally reach out and say something nice please like again that I'm a Pisces thing I I can't take the negative shit if you've seen the whiz don't nobody bring me no bad news (laughs) anyways um all of that stuff, all of those links, as well as my references, can be found in the description box per the usual. Drum roll. Our last episode, I discussed the criminal or the crimes committed by troubled Massachusetts teenager Daniel LaPlante in the late 1980s. Today's episode, I shall be telling you what had happened in the land of the rising sun when a serial rapist and killer prowled the dark corners of the Tokyo nightlife. Let's see here. Joji Abara was born Kim Sung Jong on August 10th, 1952. His parents were i'm trying not to slaughter this shit i'm these words i'm sorry um were the in koreans which wikipedia defines this as the majority of koreans in japan are za in koreans often known simply as za in um There are people who are permanent ethnic Koreans who are residents of Japan. The term Zainichi Koreans refers only to long-term Korean residents of Japan who trace their roots to Korea under Japanese rule, distinguishing them from the later wave of Korean migrants who came mostly in the 1980s and from pre-modern immigrants dating back to antiquity who may themselves be the ancestors of the Japanese people. Huh. 
While there is little known about Joji's mother and father, what is known is that his family went from poverty to extreme wealth in Osaka. So Joji's father began as a scrap collector and taxi driver, squirreling away his yen so he could procure various successful pachinko parlors, which are like little gambling little gambling buildings um we when i was stationed in japan 20 years ago 21 yeah 20 and 21 years ago yeah i got there in 2002 i left in 2003 but i was there for a whole year so anyways when i got to japan when i was 20 that whole year i was there we weren't allowed as marines to go to certain places and the pachinko parlors were right on top of that list because it's like gambling and you know don't want to do that so anywho when joji was 15 years old he was enrolled in a highly prestigious prep school which was owned by keio university he graduated from the private prep school where guaranteed admittance was given to him like into that university so when joji was 17 years old his father died and his father's passing in his father's passing he inherited his father's holdings in osaka and tokyo which was a lot after completing his studies at university and receiving his degrees in law and politics Joji became a Japanese citizen and legally changed his name from Kim Song Jong to Joji Obara. The world was like at this. He was, I would say he was handsome before he did some shit to himself, but the world was at the handsome, wealthy, educated bachelor's feet. In an attempt to become far wealthier, Joji invested heavily in real estate speculation. His his gains amassed an estimated 38 million so it was unclear if that was an yen or usd and if it was yen to dollar that would be approximately $279,098.60 if it was dollar to yen, which I believe is approximately five billion one hundred seventy four million two hundred thirty two thousand yen with today's exchange rate. Yeah. So um when the bubble burst and Japan was thrust into a recession in the early 90s, Joji lost his amassed fortune and firm. So drowning in creditors, Joji reportedly allowed Yakuza syndicate Sumiyoshi Kai to launder money through his business. Simultaneously, while all of these career highs and lows were happening for Joji in his private life, Joji lived the rock star lifestyle, which included hard partying and frequenting the Tokyo bar scene, which which featured Western hostesses. Uh, 
in these establishments, the patrons are gentlemen who come in after work for a drink and at times practice their English with beautiful Western women who primarily hail from Europe. And then that's, that's a very big deal that I'm saying all of this. Um, so again, like I can't speak about what goes on for the people that are stationed in like other parts of Japan but I know that they had like the kung fu grip on us down in Iwakuni so again like I said that list of places we weren't allowed to frequent we were not allowed to frequent the bars that featured these quote-unquote western hostesses aka European women and Australian women um at all like we had a couple right outside of the gate and we were not allowed to we were not allowed to go there like you would see these women out in town and like you would you would never see them really at night, obviously, because they're working as hostesses in these clubs, which is strictly, like, clothed and not prostitution at all, by the way. I'm going to get into all of that in a minute. But let me just paint the picture for you, because, like, through my blurry eyes 20 years ago, I could recall there would be some, not many bless me there were there were a few times when I would drag my ass out of the bed on the weekend and like go outside the gate during the day because I mean like listen I was nocturnal as hell during the weekends <laughs> slept during the day partied with my friends every weekend night went clubbing and stuff like that but they were dance clubs and so it was, so it was whatever but um chef don't Anyways, I was sewing my royal oats. Anyways, um, this episode is derailing quickly. Um, once in a while you'd be in the cab or walking around. And from a distance, you would see someone who... Because you're... In, uh, put it like this. As a foreigner... For me, on a military base, I would see someone off in the distance and I would think, oh, she could be a dependent or a sister marine or sister sailor. But then, like, you would get closer and you would see that, like, the clothing styles weren't, like, Americanized or that, like... The facial features were more European and uh, not as, um, what's the word, melting pot-ish. Like, I guess, like, because we're so ethnically diverse as Americans, if you look at your ancestry, you know what I mean? Like, it, it... you could tell the difference is what I'm getting at. Like they stand out a little bit, you you know, like I could tell somebody from Australia, a woman from Australia and some of her features vices, you know, just a regular 
girl in my barracks, I guess. I don't know. But anyways, um, and that's not to say, they, these women were beautiful. It would just be like, oh, snap. It would be really nice to see someone out in town and they were like thriving and they were also foreigners. It's just because I'm an American, th- to me, this is Western so to to un, to see that 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 for them Europe is where they stopped with you know whom they tried to get to work as hostesses was interesting to me for the most part like i'm sure they probably hired a couple of american girls here and there that were willing to work abroad but it sounds like a lot of them hailed from europe So the hostesses would laugh at the jokes of their patrons, light cigarettes, order drinks, engage in light conversation, and sing karaoke. Essentially act as, don't come at me in Japan, because I am not (laughs) saying they are at all like a geisha, but like an extremely watered down and evolved, westernized, version of a geisha which means which still means that there was no sex between the patrons and hostesses everything was strictly platonic now patrons however could arrange a dohan which is a platonic date between the patron and hostess wherein the patron pays for the hostess's dinner and transportation back to her place of business Joji had become obsessed with and had fetishized Western women as well as Western culture. He also, in an extremely sexually repressed and conservative country and culture, harbored some extremely dark thoughts and proclivities when it involves women and sex. So, Joji began creating his private collection of home videos. Videos of Joji in his various seaside condos, donning a Zorro mask, performing various perverse sexual acts on women with whom many were drugged and unconscious during their assaults. When the women would awake the following day sore and bruised and lacking any memories of the night before, Joji would tell them that they got extremely drunk, like he'd given them like a special herb in their drink that would immediately knock them out. Excuse me. And so he would tell them like, you got extremely drunk, you know you don't remember how wild you were and then he would give them money and tell them you know hey girl you know you should take a couple of days off from work and get your rest other women willingly allowed joji to act out his fantasies late december 1991 21-year-old Australian Karita Ridgeway traveled to Tokyo to join her sister Samantha, who had moved to Japan to be with her boyfriend, who was, like, studying at university. So when Samantha moved to Tokyo, she was able to obtain a job teaching English. And this sounded perfect to Karita, 
who wanted to study acting, but, you know, she needed money to pay for acting classes. And she had tried modeling and it was okay, but like she wanted to move into acting. And so she wanted to take classes. So why not move to Japan while Australia is in this recession? The problem was that when Karita arrived to Japan, there weren't any teaching jobs to be found. While looking for employment in an English printed an English printed advertisements in the newspaper Japan Times, Karita found an ad at <clears throat> Club Ayakoji looking for Western hostesses. On February 14th, 1992, Karita accepted a Dohan from Joji. After chloroforming her excessively, he sexually assaulted her. When Karita failed to regain consciousness, he took her to the hospital, telling staff his friend had suffered food poisoning. Joji called the shared apartment Karita lived in at with her sister and other roommates um left a message stating that Karita was with friends when Samantha who was away with her boyfriend returned late you know later on on February 15th the roommates relayed the odd message it wouldn't be long after that Samantha was then contacted by the hospital she rushed to be with Karita when she arrived, she was informed that an older Japanese man had dropped her off at the hospital, citing food poisoning from bad shellfish. So now Samantha has like informed the family in Australia, and the family rallied around Karita as her condition rapidly declined, and she was transferred to a women's hospital, where she completely deteriorated in front of confused and befuddled medical staff, who couldn't understand what was happening. So during the time of Karita's fight for life, Joji would call the hospital and speak to Samantha on a few occasions using an alias and refusing to leave his phone number. Joji would inquire about Karita's health issues and status. He would claim that she'd eaten bad shellfish at a resort. He'd attempted to take care of her even going as far as having his private doctor look at her before she fell so ill, he rushed her to the hospital. The women's hospital Karita was transferred to would eventually conclude that she was in liver failure due to hepatitis. With her body shutting down, Karita was then in a coma and put on life support. Karita died just days before her 22nd birthday and was cremated the day before her birthday. Before her cremation, though, a sample of her liver was taken because all of this shit was super sketch and it was a total head scratcher for the doctors. And, you know, you never know when, you know, that might come in handy. Excuse me, I needed a sippity sip. So... Joji ducked and dodged Karita's family, who were beyond confused and, like, in shock 
at the untimely death of their loved one. This was like super suspicious making to Samantha and her family who had gone to authorities with the help of Samantha's boyfriend, only to have the authorities essentially like laugh in their faces and send them away because none of this smelled right to them off the rip. The family believed that once it was made mention that Carita was working as a hostess, the authorities lacked interest. There wasn't much that Carita's family could do, so they began making preparations to return to Australia. Before Carita's parents' departure, Joji finally stopped evading the family. They met at an, air- at an airport hotel, and during their encounter, Joji, still going by his alias, which was Akira Nishida, told the family how Karita had taken ill and made her untimely death after eating bad oysters. Yeah, right. Afterwards, Joji reached into his pocket and presented a diamond ring and matching necklace. Joji told Karita's parents he'd loved their daughter and had planned to give her the jewels on her birthday. Which was super sus because they knew that Karita also had a boyfriend who was going to, like, the University of South Wales or something like that at the time. Whatever, any way you cut it, they knew she had a boyfriend and this was weird. So then Joji tried to give the jewelry... Oh, wait, so he tells them... That he'd love their daughter and he'd planned to give the jewels to Karita on her birthday. Afterwards, he then tried to give the jewels and a 50 million yen condolence payment, insisting he was in love with Karita, who had only been working at the club for like a month and some change tops, like maybe six weeks or so. So, for those of you who are wondering what a condolence payment is, condolence payments are quote well there's like a couple of different terms for it but we're gonna go for what i got off of this particular page so okoden is a money offering in this case condolence money which is typically given to the bereaved by guests at japanese funerals the amount will generally be will range from 3,000 to 30,000 yen, depending on the relationship to the deceased, the social and financial status of the mourner and the bereaved family, end quote. So, the only condicile that Joji insisted on was that the family sign a statement stating that Karita's death was due to the care she received whilst in hospital. Now, Samantha wasn't fooled and neither were her parents. So, they said no. And Joji, or Akira as he called himself, was trying to bribe them and they refused. Karita's parents returned to Australia and Joji began slipping back into his old habits. Joji continued frequenting the nightclubs and bars luring 
chloroforming, raping, and recording his perversions over and over, year after year. Only getting caught for anything once. In 1998, Joji was charged with a misdemeanor and fined $75 for attempting to videotape women in a restroom while dressed in drag inside the beach town and it was like in a bathroom inside of the beach town of Shirahama. One of the reasons Joji had managed to slip under the radar and go without detection was was his adamant objection to having his own photo taken and hiding behind dark sunglasses, all of Jim Jones, uh he also harbored a lot of self-hatred for himself as a Korean man, or I'm sorry, a Korean Japanese man. And so what he ended up doing was undergoing plastic surgery to have his eyes widened. He was a slip of a man, so he started taking hormones, and because of his short height his, his stature he wore lifts in his shoes he also grew out like a really weird like porn stash like it, it was like kind of like forgive me like it gave like motorcycle cop vibes I don't know. It was just weird. It just didn't fit his face. But whatever. So he like hated himself. And like that's sad. He had his wonky mustache. And he was taking the hormones. He had lifts. He was obsessed with all things western. So you know there were like many members only jackets in his wardrobe. Um, And he probably listened to Michael Jackson and loved Coca-Cola. I don't know. But, like, yeah, he was, like, obsessed with all things Western. Um, aside from business, he was also a man who operated during the night, ping-ponging from seaside property to property. When not in Rapongi in the Rapongi district, stalking prey amongst the Tokyo nightlife. Behind the security of his cameras, gates, and doors of his various homes, immense hoarding of everything. Like, okay, so at his mansion, because he had a mansion too, he had various classic cars, some of them with flat tires. Um, the fleet included a Maserati, a Bentley, a Ferrari. A Rolls Royce Silver Cloud and a 1960s Aston Martin. The yard was lit. The yard of the mansion was like littered with trash, car batteries, all sorts of just rubbish. Go inside the home, and there's even more shit that he's hoarded. Um including film equipment, so on and so forth. His accumulated treasure spilling throughout the rooms and surfaces of his dwellings. 
which, as I said before, included condominiums and a mansion. Um, he had Western-themed furniture and weird-ass tchotchkes and stuff like that. So by the year 2000, Joji's collection of recordings numbered somewhere between four and 5,000. When 21-year-old Lucy Blackman of Kent decided to leave her job as a flight attendant for British Airways and work abroad for the summer with her friend Louise Phillips. So Lucy's plan was to make money to pay off the debts that she'd occurred. Lucy was a girl who loved her baubles and bits, bits and baubles, and she, at a young age, had run up a little tabby poo. It really wasn't so much. I can't remember how much it was. There's a book, People Who Eat Darkness, which I believe is in the references, is one of the many references. And the author did go into a lot of detail. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I read that book years ago. Like, pre-podcast years ago. And um, it's like 400 plus pages. So by the time I got to starting on this script, I couldn't remember what I found it. But it's okay. Nonetheless, her debts weren't that much. Um, but she, you know, so she just planned to work for the summer, so she'd get them the coins that she wanted and needed. So soon after moving to Tokyo, Lucy met and fell for U.S. Marine Scott Fraser, who was stationed on the USS Kitty Hawk. The two would spend like you know some time together, and it was super sweet, you know. Now, professionally, Lucy fit in quite seamlessly with her co-workers, who, like the customers and clients, like, all loved her. Lucy had a wonderful sense of wit and intelligence, as well as beauty that kept the clients of the club enthralled. The one condicile about this particular club, unlike the one that Carita worked at, is that Lucy's club required its hostesses to go on like a certain amount of dohans per month. While I believe like with Carita's, it was in a more upscale area and that one, it was more like they didn't say you had to go on dohans, but it was encouraged. So... On July 1st, 2000, when Lucy got dressed for her day, you know, she slipped on her sandals, a little black summer dress, and a silver necklace. Louise assumed that Lucy would be going on an early Dohan since they had, uh, she and Scott and Louise all had plans for the evening. Lucy's date had promised her a cell phone, which were super difficult for non-Japanese nationals to obtain at the time. Um, and that's weird. Cause like, I remember 
again, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe I should have paid more attention, but uh, I remember in Hiroshima, for instance, and I mean, obviously different parts of the country, but I remember, for instance, in Hiroshima, and even in Iwakuni, not like at the train station, so they had cell phone vending machines. So for X amount of yen, yenjimins, you could get a cell phone. Now, I wasn't certain if they were like prepaid or if you had to go through like a phone plan with whomever in Japan. But nonetheless, at this time in 2000, because I, like I said, I was there 2002, 2003, shit changes. Um, but at that time... Cell phones were super difficult for non-Japanese nationals to obtain. And, like, all she had to do was accompany her date to a restaurant. So, while on her date, Lucy contacted Louise and Scott three times each. First at one thirty, saying, or, yeah, first at one thirty, saying that she met her lunch date. Next at five, stating that she was being taken to the sea, and once more at seven when she said that she would be home in 30 minutes. Neither Louise nor Scott would hear from Lucy again. The following day, Lucy received a message from a man saying that, quote, Lucy had joined a newly risen cult. She is fine in training in a hut in Chiba. After making his phone call to Louise, Joji got to work disposing of Lucy's body from his condo in Miura, which wasn't going to be easy because, quote, a driveway driveway turns to get out of his building. There's only one way out. A driveway turns out to the right of the front door. The small marina is straight ahead. To the left, there is a small parking lot. Then a narrow path leading across stones and cement pilings to the tiny beach, which is maybe one quarter of the area of a tennis court. Five meters back from the water is a rock face with a crevice a couple of meters wide, extending a few meters from the beach. It is partially open on top and light streams into it. There used to be a discarded bathtub there among pieces of trash blown in by the wind. Now, due to the difficulties faced getting her body out in one piece without detection. Joji cut Lucy's body into 10 pieces and wrapped them inside plastic bags, then shaved Lucy's head and encased it inside a bucket with cement. He then buried her body in a shallow grave beneath the discarded bathtub. The following day, July 3rd, when Lucy still hadn't returned home, Louise went to the police to file a missing persons report. She also informed 
all of Lucy's family. So Lucy's sister arrived in Tokyo on July 5th and her parents were like a few days, you know, arrived a few days later. While in Tokyo, feverishly searching for Lucy, the Blackmans handed out 30,000 printed flyers with Lucy's face staring back. The family also appealed to the media during this time. As it would work out in their favor, Prime Minister Tony Blair was slated to attend the G8 summit, the G8 summit in Okinawa. After emailing and appealing to the Prime Minister Blair, Lucy's father announced that the police had finally worked out all of their issues surrounding uh, being able to obtain cell phone records that had been hindering the search for Lucy. Leads began to pour in as Lucy's story became international news. There were, we see this here in America when it comes to cases. For instance, when Gabby Petito uh, went missing and a couple of other uh, incidents of violence towards missing and then murder of uh, white American women were highly publicized and put out there in the media. On the other side of things, it was put out that there are people of color whose stories don't get the same amount of coverage, if any at all. On the same, in the same uh, universe as that, in Japan, in Fukushima, a woman spoke to a reporter who essentially said that when Lucy's crime occurred, like, you could not escape her face. She was in the news, she was in the newspapers everywhere because she was a white woman. Crime happens to us Japanese women all the time and no or and us Japanese people and nobody ever says a word was essentially what this person said to a reporter during the time. So, um talk about history repeating itself. <sighs> Unfortunately, you know, it it happens. Um so as leads began to pour in, um, three women reported having had similar dating experiences as the one described as Lucy's final date. And they were all Western women who were working as hostesses. Um, and they weren't working with like legally. So there was like, some people were being taken seriously where some people were not um, being taken as seriously. However, everything that they were saying was lining up. And while the police ignored these assertions from the women that they were, you know, all brutalized by this person who absolutely had to have her harmed, you know, Lucy, um, they all said the same thing. They all said that they'd woken up in Joji's bed, 
physically ill and sore with no recollection of the night before. And they were finding, par- but the police did find the parallels between the men named Hash- uh, Ashira and Joji. Because each woman, I'm sure, had like a different name. He had like a couple of different aliases. Um, while her remains had yet to be recovered, in October 2000, Joji Abara was formally charged with drugging, raping, and killing Lucy Blackman, the manslaughter of Carita Ridgeway, and the rape of eight women. Upon search of Joji's residence... Police collected, as I mentioned before, between four and 5,000 pornographic home videos. 150 to 400 of the women in the videos were believed to have been rape victims of Joji's, which is prolific. The videos contained footage of Joji penetrating women with various objects while engaging in, quote, conquer play. Among the journals Joji kept, he wrote, quote, My goal is to have sex with 500 people by the age of 50. And, quote, I can't do it with women who are conscious. I forgot to put this in the script. But when they, op- when they entered one of his homes, there stood, like, a life-size... Um, statue of a German shepherd and it was hand painted with a pink tongue and everything right amongst all of the weird shit in this house right there's probably like a fucking wax statue of like Elvis or some shit wearing the white jumpsuit somewhere thank you thank you very much somewhere like something random right like you know what I mean like it just sounds like a clusterfuck, to be honest with you. So they open up his refrigerator because you do this while you're searching for evidence, right? And you know what they find in that refrigerator? I'm going to tell you what they found in that refrigerator. They've found a completely frozen German Shepherd. And they were like, yo, my guy, why is there an entire an, an entire frozen German Shepherd in your fucking fridge? And Joji was like, I'm preserving my beloved pet. So hopefully with the advancements in science, I will be able to have my beloved pet cloned in the future. On February 9th, 2001, the dismembered remains of Lucy Blackman were recovered from the shallow grave beneath the bathtub. Joji's trial began on July 4th, 2001. Apparently, those wheels of justice are super slow in Japan. Um, it's a super long and drawn out process because it wasn't until April 24th, 2007 that Joji was found guilty of manslaughter in the death of Karita Ridgeway and multiple charges of rape, 
but acquitted of the rape and murder of Lucy Blackman for lack of direct evidence, although her remains were found literally buried in a grave a few hundred meters away from his fucking condo. I'm just saying. I don't know how much more direct evidence you fucking need when the woman who you had a Dohan with goes missing and her body is literally found feet away from your condominium. Sir, do better. (sighs) Lucy's father accepted a four hundred and fifty thousand yen condolence payment yeah I think that's right from Joji however the judge did not see the condolence payments from Joji as like penance like he didn't feel like it was hitting off a shit And he wasn't swayed or moved by Joji's monetary generosity. So, he went and sentenced Joji to life in prison in 2008. There were some appeals which were kicked back. Um... We tried to we tried to send him back for the murder of Lucy Blackman, but in the end, Joji was still like that was dismissed. Then he tried to like have his sentence. I don't know. Re- he wanted to retrial sentence some shit. I don't know. And they were like, no, 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 no. We are sticking to the life sentence imprisonment because you are, sir, a menace to society. Your crimes are like a lot. So what had happened is this. Joji Obara... had weird obsessions I mean I get it like I absolutely understand the obsession with western culture having lived in Japan and knowing like the love that they have for a lot of the things that we possess within moments in time in our culture that they glom onto like for instance when I was there 20 years ago, we used to go, don't you come for me. We used to go mullet hunting. And when I say mullet hunting, it was, you could go out and you could just find the most, point out the most glorious rockabilly mullets. Okay. Like as far as the eye could see. And it was pretty much just like making a game of it without it being like a drinking game because you're walking through the streets and stuff like that. But it was like, how many of these great mullets are we going to see? Because they've taken it and like gone back to the like 
heyday of its glory and throwing a rockabilly twist on it and I remember going clubbing and like there was a club that I only went into literally twice they really glommed onto the west coast California uh lowrider cholo chola um look and fast forward 20 years later and those same looks are still very present and still very fashionable um but so yeah like his love for things western became an obsession he had some funky fetishes and obsessions and I think a lot of that stemmed from a I already said it. He didn't love himself. If you're going to go and have plastic surgery to have your beautiful almond-shaped eyes widened so that you can look like what you perceive to be the Western standard of beauty, a la Burt Reynolds. I can't think of a big, wide-eyed actor but whatever you know what I mean but I mean like I say Burt Reynolds because of the stash because he definitely wasn't giving Tom Selleck that's a sexy ass mustache I swear to god that just <clears throat> always love Tom Selleck's mustache anyways digressions tonight but um you know what I mean like he just didn't love himself he wore lifts in his shoes like Tom Cruise he took hormones to bulk his body up, which it is what it is, bro, you know, he did all of these things, and I don't know, like, I know for sure that because of the conservative beliefs about sex in that culture, everything's very taboo and hush-hush, um, that had a lot to do with it, but, like, bro. And then the savagery to the thought of, like, him and and how slick and stealthy he was. Like, I think of how he managed to sneak through and slip through the cracks for m- decades. Okay? For years and years and years. And go undetected because most of the victims were simply too scared to say anything because they knew they weren't going to be believed or, you know, they didn't know what happened because they were completely unconscious. You know, um, I think it's wild But I will say this, like, for instance, I mean, like, I don't know for what it's like as far as, like, the club scene in Tokyo, but if it's anything like in Hiroshima, in Hiroshima, they tell you that you can go bar hopping all night long and not hit up every single bar. And it's true. I didn't even try. Like, I I, I stopped... (laughs) 
at like a club and that was it and that's where we stayed until the next morning when the next train back to base came in and good times good times but you know um the fact is he sat there he prayed he like went from place to place and these women were never going to be believed so he was and then he and then it was like adding insult to injury because he had a collection of all of these videos of all of the things that he was doing and nobody knew he had nobody in his circle he didn't have a circle he was a loner what you need to be to be as mentally sick as he was with you know what he was doing um to these women um you know <sighs> like if he wasn't as repressed overall in every capacity i think and also spoiled little rich kid on this at the same token and then like living fast and living that rock star lifestyle and then getting in bed with the wrong people to maintain that lifestyle when the recession hit like there's so many different things and then you couple all of that shit with his passion for stalking women performing these acts and then paying people off and then just disposing of them like pish posh and he really thought he was going to get away with it when he killed Lucy and Karita. For sure. And he thought he had gotten away, in fact, with Karita's murder for, like, nine years. Before, like, he was charged with the with manslaughter and found guilty of it. Like, absolutely, he thought he had gotten away with it. He thought he was slick because he developed an alias and he kept calling and trying to be very sympathetic and apologetic, but also, like, you know, weaseling for information and then trying to bribe them. And kudos to Samantha and the family for absolutely seeing it for what it was, a payoff. You can't put a price like that on a, on our family member for what you've done to her. No. And the same thing goes with Lucy. Because then he had like nine years. There was a nine year time frame where all he was just doing. Well, it's not all he was doing. Where he was going back to chloroform, rape, record discard pay off repeat you know and he did that successfully roofing and chloroforming these women without harming them uh until lucy and it even said in one of his journals next to karita's name too much chloroform you know, um, the dismemberment of her, of Lucy's body, 
the burying of her remains in a shallow grave. They said that the police had searched that area thoroughly, like, time and time again. And, like, of all the places nobody looked, nobody thought to look inside that small little area where that bathtub was at. Or at least, or, or, or search underneath the bathtub. He's 70 years old now. He's still in prison serving his life sentence. And he will most likely die there. Um, I know that they've said that a lot of things have changed within the clubs. Since then... Um, there have been a couple of other, there was another gentleman in Japan who committed a similar crime. Um, but they've hopefully gotten better. I personally can't speak for how the ladies who hostessed or, you know, came abroad to Japan to work were treated because I didn't associate with any of them. But, you know, hopefully by the time I got to Japan two years post Lucy's murder, things had gotten better. Well, I mean, like, I really don't know what else to say because the guy was gross. The guy was repressed. He lives in a country that is very conservative. A lot of those repressions are put on all of the people and I really don't feel equipped to speak about another how another culture operates and like handles certain things. That's part of the reason why um, the information about the case itself, um, once it went to trial, is very minimal on my part. Um, you don't really get much um, from them. It's kind of very in-house. So, that's that. Um, yay, thank you guys for helping me get to our second anniversary. Let's move on forward. I'm looking at the calendar right now. And I'm thinking... Hmm, I could probably see about hitting you guys up with another episode around the 18th. That'll give me some time to do some research and uh, throw together a proper script for you. And then maybe one more at the very end of the month as we swim on into Pisces season. My season. Yay. Anyways, you guys, I'm Kimberly, your host of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. Thanks for soldiering on with me. This was, you know, I think this was a good episode. Have a good night. Here is your beautiful outro music. And again, I'll see you guys around the 18th. That looks like an amazing day to give you guys a good episode.